All right. Well, um, how many of you... So I'm going to rephrase that question. Do you know a person who's insanely generous? A person who sometimes they're so generous it makes you a little bit uncomfortable. You know, so-and-so is coming over, they probably have a gift. <laughs> so-and-so is coming over, um, I'm probably going to get something from them. And you, you know it's a great, uh, like a great picture of generosity. And, and you might have that person in your mind, you might not. But for me, the person I think of when I think is extremely generous is my grandma. And my grandma is so generous that, in fact, one of the most dangerous things you can do is let her find out something that you like. <laughs> if she finds out that you're into bacon, you get bacon cookbooks, you get bacon calendars, you get bacon, like there's this, there's this, where it's like it becomes her life mission to find things that you like and get them to you. If she finds out that you like CrossFit, she finds you CrossFit stuff. If she finds out that you like beer, these are all hypothetical things she's find out that I like about me. She, it, it, these, uh, these things come to me. And so there's, it's kind of this thing where you know that if grandma finds out that you like something, she's going to find a way to give it to you, and bless you in that regard. And I think about this passage is all about grace and what it means to be saved by grace. And a lot of times we think about grace as like this concept, but most basically when I think about grace, I think about my grandma. I think about generosity. I think about blessing. Sometimes we think about grace as an impersonal or kind of just a disconnected reality that like gets me into heaven sometime. By grace, I'm saved. And grace is this doctrine that's in my head that helps me with my self-esteem. And I think a lot of times what happens is we mistake grace and forgiveness. See, forgiveness requires the presence of sin. There can't be forgiveness where there isn't sin. However, grace does not necessarily require the presence of sin. Grace can, is more like a benevolent generosity, a disposition of giving. It's this hospitable inclusion of people, such that even in the beginning, before Adam and Eve sinned, God blessed them and gave them so many great things. And so in that sense, one of the common definitions we think of a grace is that grace is unmerited favor, and I think that definition is fine and good, but I would go with kind of a more personal definition, that grace is unmerited relational blessing. It's this unmerited blessing that is designed to bring people together. And that's, that's one of the reasons why I think my grandma is so generous, is not because she just is looking for something to do, but rather because she loves, she gives. Because gifts are meant to bind people together. Gifts are meant to be expressions of love. And a lot of times when I think about grace, and I grew up thinking about grace as a doctrine or a concept, I think about grace in terms of just what happens when I die. Rather, our big idea that we're going to get at this, this morning is that more than grace just being something that gets me into somewhere, rather, grace is something that does something. Our big idea is that grace creates it accomplishes, it works. That when we think about what happens when grace shows up in our life, it's not just that I go from thinking less of myself to thinking of more of myself. Rather, when grace shows up in my life, it conquers me. When the grace of God shows up in my life, it tears me down and builds me up anew. 
When grace shows up in my life, it takes me from being dead to being alive. When grace shows up in my life, I begin to change in a meaningful way. When grace shows up in my life, my worldview shifts, my behavior changes, that grace is creating a new Seth Trout right now, just like grace is creating a new Redemption Gateway right now. That grace is not just a ticket that you put on your heaven that means save and you get to heaven. Rather, grace is a personal moving towards presence of God at work in all of our lives and at all times. And most basically, we cannot think about God's grace without seeing it in terms of the fact that God has moved towards us. That whole song, Reckless Love, leaves the 99. This picture of a shepherd who has enough, but yet he pursues the one. That pursuing, blessing, relational, covenantal, connected, God moving towards us is the essence of his grace. And if we approach salvation by grace alone, or if we approach God's grace as just a doctrine to get right or an idea that helps us with our self-esteem, we're missing the point, the fact that God in his grace, in his presence, by his spirit, is right now working on us. And this morning, we're going to see how the grace of God colonizes our hearts, how it creates new realities, how it moves us and shapes us and saves us and includes us and perseveres in us and forgives us and baptizes us and disciplines us. This is the grace of God living and active among us, not an idea, but a person. I want us to see the effectiveness of grace this morning. I want us to see in this text that grace is accomplishing something and has accomplished something. Let's pray that we'll get this grace on our hearts in a beautiful way. God, I pray for all the people in this room, like me, who grew up hearing that we're saved by grace alone, that that would never become just something we repeat and say that would never become cliche, that would never become rote, but rather we'd be shocked by it every time. That this picture of a generous, blessing God would captivate our hearts and our minds. God, I also pray for the people in the room who this is new information for or it's recent information for, that the idea that you save them and love them and include them on the basis of your grace alone that that's shocking and that's hard to believe and it might even seem like wishful thinking, but God, I pray that you'd soften them, help them see your face, help them see your work. Amen. Amen. So grace creates, and we're going to see how grace creates a number of different things, but the first thing that grace creates is shown to us here in verse 8. Ephesians 2, verse 8. By grace you have been saved. And most basically what we see is that grace creates a people, and my Queen Creek translation of this is, by grace, y'all been saved. There's a, there's a collective corporate piece to this, and so God is creating a people. God is creating a community. God is creating a force to be reckoned with, a counter-cultural society who will push back against the curse and proclaim the kingdom of God over and against the kingdom of the empire everywhere that they go. And this word saved here, a lot of times we think about the word saved only in terms of spirituality, as being saved from hell. And that dimension's true, but there's another sense of this word saved that's inherently 
political. The word saved, before it was a spiritual word, was actually a political word. And that when emperors would come in and take over or replace previous emperors, that emperor was saved to have saved you from the previous empire's evil regime. And so here in Ephesians 2, we get a sense that God is saving a people by forming a new political community called the kingdom of God, who will be a countercultural force working against the forces of the evil empire currently at work in the world all around us. And so this question of how do I get in on that new thing? There's a new day dawning, a new emperor reigning, a new king on the throne, and how do you become a part of what's going on? Because in Rome, you had to be born into it, or you had to pay your way into it. But in the kingdom of God, you're not born into it, and you don't pay your way into it. Someone else pays your way into it, and you get in by grace alone. And so when we talk about being a part of this new thing, that this new savior, this new people, this new kingdom, the new emperor who reigns on high, how do I get in on that new thing that the new king is doing in the world? The answer is grace. You don't earn your way in. You don't earn staying in. You don't pay your own way. You receive a ticket that is a gracious grant of generosity and blessing. That if you want to be a part of that new thing that God is doing in Jesus Christ in the world, that new countercultural kingdom of God community, if you want to get in on that, if you want to be a part of that, there's only one way in, and that's the death and resurrection of the Son on your behalf. And as long as you feel like you need to earn your way in, you'll never actually be in. Because if you appeal to your own goodwill, your own deeds, your own financial contribution, your own good works, you are trying to get into some other community, not the community of God. Because the community of God is a place where everyone who's in is in by grace and by grace alone. Do you see that? Do you feel that? The temptation to want to pay your way in, the temptation to want to serve your way in, the temptation to want to give your way in, the temptation to want to clean yourself up so that you can stay in. Because that's the message of the world around you. Pay your way in. Work your way in. And if we bring that works-driven vision of how to be included in God's people into the church, that's when we create this culture of judgment, this culture of acid, this culture of tearing one another down because we're constantly evaluating people on who's bought enough of themselves to come in. And so grace is not just an idea, but grace is actually creating a people. And if you find yourself to be a Christian, it's because you've been included in the people of God. It's not just that God is saving individuals so that they don't have to go to hell. It's that God is saving a people to be a kingdom, a countercultural community with a different set of values, a different vision of the good life, a different understanding of what it is to be a human. And we are a part of that, and we're a part of that because of God's grace, not because of anything prior inside of us. The second thing we see in this passage is that grace creates faith. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. So grace is creating faith. It's not of your own doing. And so this word this, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, those two um, uh, reference actually refer back to the whole chain, the grace, the saved, and the faith. The grace is not your own doing. The saved is not your own doing. The faith is not your own doing. You don't fabricate and build in among yourself faith. This is uh, what happens a lot of times when I'm doing marriage counseling. Is somewhere along the lines, 
one of the couples violated the trust of the other person. Either the husband breaches the trust or the wife breaches the trust. Usually it's the husband, but sometimes it's the wife. And what happens a lot of times is in that relationship, in that connection, there's a sense in which the, other, the person who has broken the trust just says, just trust me. Just trust me. Just have, have more faith in me. And we see that the word trust and the word faith and the word believe all are essentially referring to the same thing. It's this connected, willful, benevolent regard for, but it's a, it's a trusting of the person. And so telling someone to just trust me is not how it works because faith and trust and belief are functions of the memory. That the reason you can trust your spouse is because of the memories you have together, because they've shown themselves to be faithful, because they've shown themselves to be trustworthy, because they've shown themselves to be worthy of your trust and your regard. And when that trust is broken, one of the things I have to do in marriage counseling is tell people, you can't just tell them, trust me now. You have to go on earning their trust again. There's a back to the square one moment that has to happen. There's a sense in which you go, now you have to begin to create more positive memories so that that person will be able to trust you again. So what you see here is that faith in a person... So my faith in my wife is because I have experienced her faithfulness. Similarly with God. I can have faith in God because I've experienced and seen his grace. So when people come to me and I hear that they've been told by other people, just have more faith, just have more belief, just have more trust, more faith, and there's like this exhortative, commanding, just have more faith. That's a misunderstanding of how we get faith. It's a misunderstanding of how our faith grows. Rather, where faith grows when we experience the grace of God. We have faith in his grace. We don't have faith in our own faith. That's a weird cultural thing going on now where it's like, well, faith helped me get through. No, it didn't. Grace helped you get through. And faith connected you to that grace. God is the one who works. We don't have faith in our own faith. We have faith in God's grace. And this is one of the reasons why regular church attendance and the people who I know who read the Old Testament, the stories in the Old Testament, that their faith over time grows because they come to church and they hear stories of God's grace. They come to church and they hear through the word and through the preaching and the gathering of the people that we learn and develop more and more memory over time of the fact that God is worthy of our trust. Amen. And this is why... When people experience real difficulty, that a lot of times they simultaneously have real difficulty with their faith. Because there's a gap between expectation and experience. And I've seen this where people who are new to the faith suffer. And it creates this crisis of faith where they go, I thought I could trust God. But this recent experience makes me think that maybe I can't. And I've seen similar people, but who have been Christians for 70 years, experience suffering far beyond anything close to what I've ever done in my whole life, or experienced or seen. 
and they go, I know that God's worthy of my trust, even though right now it doesn't totally feel like it. And I go, what's the difference between the person who's been a Christian for six weeks, who when something really difficult happens, they have this crisis of faith moment, but someone who's been a Christian for 60 years, and when something really difficult happens, they have this firm, grounded trust in the goodness of God. And the answer is, this older, wiser, more experienced person of the faith has had decades of memories where they see and experience the grace and goodness of God in their daily life. And so if you want to grow in your faith, if you want to see your faith blossom, if you want to see the goodness of God all around you, the way that we do that is by exposing ourselves to the grace of God, by developing memories of how he's worked in and through history, in and through his scriptures, and how he's working in and through here. That's why I think so many of us have this great Easter morning experience is because we come up here, we listen to people share their testimonies of how God has worked in their life, and we develop these memories of how God is worthy of our trust because we see God working in that person's life. And so when we see God's grace at work, our faith grows. So if you ever feel like, I just need to have more faith, and so I'm just going to somehow get more faith, that's not how it works. Rather, seeing God's grace, experiencing God's grace, developing memories of God's grace, stepping out in faith so you can see and how, see how God shows up in little things. This is how we grow in faith. And this is essentially what Paul is talking about in Philippians 1.20. He says, it has been graced or granted to you that for the sake of Christ that you should believe in him. It is when grace shows himself to us that we develop faith. See, on the last day when you stand before God and he goes, why should I let you into my kingdom? A wrong answer is because I believed. A right answer is because of your grace. We're not admitted into the kingdom of heaven on the basis of our faith. We're admitted into the kingdom on the basis of God's grace. And we experience that grace. Faith is the natural result. When you experience God is trustworthy, you begin to trust him. When you experience the grace of God, you begin to have faith in him. And so if you want to grow in your faith, there's really only one way, and it's by seeing how the gracious God has worked in history, primarily as is revealed to us in the scriptures. There's no shortcuts to that. So grace creates a people, us, a faithful people. Grace creates faith, a trusting people. But then here's the next thing we see. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. I want to see here how grace creates boasting. But what it does is it creates a new type of boasting. The way that we boast changes when we come to faith. So here, Paul's saying grace creates our salvation, and it's not a result of works, not a result of anything that we've done. It's only a result of God's good character and the way that God's good character has acted and worked and worked, not worked, acted and worked in history. But the, the, one of the reasons why God is saving us on the condition of his grace is so that no one may boast, that in God's will, one of his goals and outcomes of salvation is that we would not be a boasting, self-righteous people, boasting, self-righteous 
people who say, I'm in because of something I have done, misunderstand the very heart of the gospel. Rather, no one may boast. Elsewhere, Paul says this to contrast this. He says, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. 1 Corinthians 1.31. So the question is not, will you boast, but how will you boast? And I think there's a handful of things that we're going to observe on this. So there's a type of boasting you lose. A lot of times we talk about coming to faith, and there's this great positive experience. We gain Christ. There's all this we gain. But I think when we come to faith in Christ, there's something that we lose also. We lose the privilege to engage in certain activities and behaviors when we become a Christian who believes that salvation is by grace alone. And one of the things we lose out on is the ability to boast. Here we go. Here's the type of boasting you lose. First type of boasting you lose is boasting in your morality or your intelligence. We do not get to say, I'm a Christian because I reasoned through the arguments, and if people were smart like me, they'd also become Christians. That's not how it works. You don't get to be in a position where you feel like, man, I'm glad I'm more intelligent and that I am more intellectually enlightened than all the dumb non-Christians around me. That's not a biblical vision of conversion. It's not that you just get smarter and then you get Christianized. That's the opposite of what's going on. Do you ever feel like, man, if only all the non-Christians around me weren't so dumb, they'd agree with me on everything? A lot of the political discourse I see Christians engaging in kind of feels like that, and it's pretty gross. Similarly, we don't get to boast in our morality. It's not that we're Christians because we were more likely to become Christians because we didn't sin as bad as other people. It's not that we can look at non-Christians around us and look at who are the non-Christians that are kind of more moral. Maybe they're more likely to become Christians at some point. That's not how it works either. There are no people who are likely converts, period. There's nobody who probably was going to come to faith. There's nobody in your life who is pretty smart, so eventually they'll find the truth. Rather, there's only dead people who need grace to come alive. And so if you think that, because on something inside of you, some moral goodness or some intellectual observation abilities, if you think that some of those things made you become a Christian or helped you become more Christ-like, here's the word for you, is that the gospel is offensive to you because it says you did not contribute. You were a receiver, not an achiever. And I think that deep down, we so badly, so badly, want to be able to point to something inside of ourselves that what separates me from the lost is something inside of me, not something in God's behavior, God's activity. We want to take credit. We want to hold on. We want to be in control. We want to be in the driver's seat. We want to somehow be able to say, my choice has made me who I am, and your choice has made you who you are. Rather, God's choice has made us who we are. So you lose the right to boast in your morality or your intelligence when you become a Christian. doesn't mean we don't do it anymore. We just lose the right to do it. It's a lifetime of work to stop boasting in yourself because that's the natural human thing to do, to want to take credit, to want to pat ourselves on the back. Another thing you lose, 
You lose the ability to boast in your family, nuclear, ethnic, or national. What makes me special is the fact that I'm a part of us. This is the root of racism. Somehow, we're this better group. And there's kind of like a, a lesser form of racism. Somehow, my nuclear family, my genetics, are better than these other genetics. Somehow, this nation that I was born into, not of my own doing, makes me better than other people. I'm not saying don't love your family. I'm not saying don't love your nation. I'm saying you can't sit there and go, oh, because of my nation, because of my household, because of that's why I'm a Christian. To be American is not to be Christian. To be Christian is to be Christian. To be American is to be American. We can't conflate those things. Do you, do you find any pride or a sense of self-smugness because of your family? Some of you are like, nope. <laughs> Some of you, that's real difficult. The third thing you lose is you lose the ability to boast in esteem derived from comparison. This happens a lot of times in counseling or church discipline situations where someone comes in and they've been sinning in a way such that it requires pastoral intervention. And one of the, the instincts they have is, well, compared to other people's sin... You see, comparison is one of the ways that we try to make ourselves feel better than other people. Comparison is one of the ways we try to make it seem like we're not as big of needy people of God's grace as other people. Yes, they need 10 dosings of grace. I only needed nine doses of grace. So in that sense, you know, I was kind of closer on my own. Similarly, I see another way of comparison that people want to say, I'm the worst sinner Therefore, I cannot be saved. This is not for me. And there's like this atonement through self-hatred and self-like. The old, in the olden days, they used to whip themselves when they sinned. Nowadays, we just, you know, say, I'm, there's no hope for me. And this like self-hatred complex comes about. And it's one of the ways that we try and help ourselves feel better is that, man, if I just feel bad enough for long enough, that's going to atone for my sin. And I want you to hear, you might be one of the people who believes that here in this room, that you are so far gone that there's no hope for you. That's the measure of resurrection. That Christ had no heartbeat. Then he was raised. That there was no breath. And that he was raised. And that every single one of us were spiritually dead in our sins. Some might have been buried six feet under. Some might have been buried 12 feet under. They're all dead. <laughs> and resurrection is something we all need. We all need to take part in. I hear sometimes that people won't become Christians because they think they're too big of sinners. That's like saying, I know God has high standards, but I think mine's a little higher. Yes, I know God is gracious. I know he's moved towards me. I know he's died for my sins. I know he's resurrected from the grave. But you know what? I've done some bad stuff. And so, eternal, holy judge, my own opinions of myself, I'll go with my opinions. And I want you to know that God's standards are higher than your standards, period. That the grace of God moves towards all people 
and calls all people to faith and repentance, and that you're not too far gone because that's not a thing. Don't compare your sin to other people's, either to make yourself feel better or to make yourself feel worse. Both, both are unhealthy, and both dismiss the fact that by grace we have been saved. And here's the last thing you lose, is you lose the right to humble brag. Christians are the worst at this, especially people who are like super Christians. They're the worst at this. This is like, oh, I can't take credit for something. Someone goes like, man, I can't believe how awesome I am because of God's work in my life. I can't believe, you know, all these famous people that I know because of God's work in my life, of course, you know, because of it. This is like this, I'm going to brag on myself, but tag on at the end, oh, because of God's work. And what that even does is it can lead to kind of this inability to receive compliments that's unhealthy as well. Hey, good job on this. Oh, God's glory. I think how you receive compliments and how you receive encouragement is an indicator of how you understand how grace works. Because someone goes like, hey, great job on this. Hey, I saw this in your life. Your ability to go, thank you, and not have to like say a bunch of spiritual things as quickly as possible so you don't feel complimented. Because, oh, yeah, grace, salvation, glory of God, Christian word, Christian word, please don't compliment me, I'm uncomfortable. <laughs> so there's like that side of it, then there's the humble brag side of it, like, oh yeah, you're right, I did nail it to God's glory alone. Like there's, Christians should be confident that God is working in us. So there should be fruit that is visible. There should be evidence that God is changing us. And when we, someone compliments us or someone encourages us, we should be able to receive that compliment and internally know, man, God's at work in my life without having to turn it into an opportunity to preach a mini sermon about, you know, well, sin, grace, salvation. So think about that. Do you have the capacity to receive encouragement? Because I think there's something unhealthy in evangelicals where we can't receive encouragement. Or are you the, the humble brag type of person who is always looking to point people to yourself, but then like with a hashtag at the end makes it about God? Because God's not a hashtag. You can't tag him on. He's not an add-on. He's not icing on the cake. Not a cherry on top. It's this fundamental restructuring of your whole life where God invades and conquers your whole values and your whole system of beliefs, your whole life, your whole world. And so you lose the right to brag or boast in any capacity. But you also gain the ability to boast in a different way. Here's one of the ways that I hope we can be free to boast. First one is boasting that Christ is in you and Christ is at work in you and that Christ is involved in my life. We should be able to sense the fact that God is changing our hearts, that God is changing our lives, that we're walking in new ways, that we are seeing God work in us, both in a salvation sense but also in a works sense, that I should be able to boast the fact that, man, I was like this, but now because of God's grace, I'm now like this. And you can tell the difference between a humble brag and boasting that Christ is at work in you. And it's kind of hard to nail down and hard to define, but it does something to someone's spirit when they have been taken over by grace, that there's this real, humble receptivity where there is this 
this adorative, worshipful sense in which I want to point to you the fact that God is at work in my life, and here's what he's teaching me. Here's how I'm growing. Here's how I'm learning. One of the things that I've, that's in my life that I've seen recently is a number of different people have told me, man, Seth, you're encouraging. And if you knew me five years ago, you would, jaw would drop. I, told, I texted some of my friends from college. Hey, people are saying that I'm encouraging. And they're like, ha, 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 LOL, hashtag, good one, you know, like whatever it is. And because my flesh is not good at building people up. I tend to just not notice people when I'm not full of the Spirit. I tend to look past them and through them and around them. But when I'm walking in the Spirit, I really sense that God is helping me see His work in their life such that I am noticing in a deeper and more profound way that Seth is being taken over by God's grace. Seth is being transformed by God's grace. That I am being transformed one day at a time, one second at a time by God's work. And I want to be attentive to how God is working in me and through me for one of the reasons is so that I can make much of him and show people that God can work in your life like he's working in my life. It doesn't have to stay the way it is. Another thing that you can boast in is Christ in others. One of the ways that I hope we as a church can have a culture of grace, a culture of hospitality, a culture where people are seen and understood and welcomed and noticed is that we would notice the evidence of grace in their lives and we'd tell them. I had a mentor tell me the other day, what would you say about someone at their funeral? Tell them before their funeral. Why wait for death to have a eulogy? Here's how I see God at work in your life. Here is how you remind me of the grace of God. Here is the ways in which I see God's spirit working through you because that helps them be encouraged and assured of their salvation and it makes contagious the fact that we can notice God's grace and his spirit working through people all around us and this by grace, y'all have been saved through faith. I can point to people and show them and tell them you are being included in what God is doing and here's evidence that I see of that and you encourage me when you walk in the spirit because I've seen this happen in you? Who are people that you can see that they remind you of God's good and gracious character? Because every person in your life is an image bearer of God, whether they're a Christian or not. One of the things that mature eyes of faith can do is see how each individual person reflects God's good and gracious character, Christian or not. Because even non-Christians are still in God's image. But Christians have a special work of the Spirit that's transforming them to be God's image bearers. Write down names. Send thank you notes. Send the text. Make the phone call. Encourage the people. Make a habit. Maybe a couple times a week, you sit down and go, Whose eulogy would I like to preach? How about I preach it to him right now in a phone call? <laughs> Boasting in the fact that we can see God at work in other people around us is an important part of our work of faith. And lastly, Christ around you. 
This is something that I'm really growing in because I tend to just not notice things. I kind of tend to live with my head in the clouds and be aloof and kind of just go about my day in a normal sense. And one of the things that, this is something I'm learning from um, Matthew Brazelton and Luke in particular, is that they really notice things in the world that remind them of God's work and God's grace in their life. For example, the other week, Luke posted a picture of a field where there's uh, some type of plant growing and it's because of a farmer, it's growing up, and he drives past it every week, and it's a reminder of the fact that God grow things, grows things bit by bit. That one week at a time, those plants get an inch higher. And just like I hope our church can be one week at a time, we all grow an inch higher. I'm thinking, oh, that's a nice observation. That's pretty cool. And so I'm driving around, and I see the opposite of a field, like one of those disgusting fields that you hope the state would just take back because there's just weeds everywhere, and <laughs> someone owns it, and there's these big, gross bushes, and just garbage everywhere, and I just like had a moment where I recognized what it is to have a field with a farmer and a field without a farmer, what it is to be a sheep with a shepherd or a sheep without a shepherd, and it reminded me of the fact that, wow, when Jesus saw the lost, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without shepherds. And I thought about my own heart, my own life. And this is from like looking at a dirt field that I'm having like this worship moment, but noticing the fact that God is at work in creation preaching to us through the fields. That he's given us two books that John Calvin talks about, the book of creation and the book in scripture. And both are revealing to us his character and his glory and his grace. And we should have eyes to see the fact that the grace of God is all around us um, working in us. So boasting, or grace creates boasting. Noticing the grace of God, noticing the activity of God, noticing God around us and in other people and in ourselves should cause this worshipful spirit where we're seeing God in places we haven't seen him before. This is one of the works of grace that you begin to develop eyes to see the invisible things of God all around you in the visible things that he's created so that you would see him. Here's the last thing that grace creates. Grace creates works. not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship. The word workmanship um, is the Greek word poema. There's a real intentionality, a woven together, a connectedness, lines, stanzas, purpose, patience. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them created in Christ Jesus for good works. Not because of good works, but for good works. So what I see here in this text is a pattern that has been shown to us throughout all of Scripture. So imagine with me here. You're going to have to think, think theological thoughts with me for a second. So it'll be over soon, but just be with me. In the beginning, Genesis 1, the earth was formless and void. There's a chaos to it. God creates Adam, and now there's work for him to do. So there's no one to work the field. God creates Adam, and then there's work for him to do. So Genesis 2, Genesis 1, has everything to do with work. There was work to be done. There's this formlessness. God creates, and now there's someone to do that work. So there's this pattern of need, creation, work that we see in Genesis. There was need for a man to do work. God created the man. Then he's supposed to do the work. 
So this is an inherently positive view of work. But what you see here is that the purpose precedes the privilege. The purpose of the creation of man to work, but there's no one to work the fields. God forms the man. Now he puts him in the garden to work. So purpose precedes privilege. Similarly, we see in the book of Exodus, the Israelites were enslaved by the nations. Then they're created as a people, taken out of slavery, so that they would be a light to the nations. The nations need lights. God elects the people to be that light, and then they're called to walk in that light, and they're unfaithful. Similarly, we see here this pattern. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. You are now a new creation in Christ Jesus, and now there's work for you to do. And this word right here, created in Christ Jesus for good works, is not talking about like a Genesis 1 sense of creation. This is the creation of God's creating a people. You are all created in Christ Jesus for works. So grace literally creates, and then there's work. Grace creates works. This is to say that God caused us to be born again. And so this passage that I kind of normatively think, this passage is about grace. This passage is about salvation. Most basically, this passage is about work, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, creating Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. One way I've heard this described in seminary was that you do not choose to be adopted into God's family, but once you are adopted into God's family, there are chores. <laughs> you don't get to be a part of the family without chores. The same grace that creates faith creates works. The same grace that saves creates works. You don't get grace you don't get to have grace that only gives you faith and salvation and, not, and have a grace that doesn't also give you works. Does your view of conversion include the fact that God is requiring works of you? Not so that you can be saved, but because you're saved. And there's a duty to this and there's also a delight to this. I remember as a kid... Uh, my dad having all these projects to do around the house, and as a small child, him taking me to Home Depot, and whether we're building a basketball hoop or building an Ikea furniture thing or whatever it is, we're together working on this thing. And I remember being like five years old and him saying, man, son, without you, I couldn't have done this. And when I'm five, I'm like, nice, you're welcome. You know, like. <laughs> but then I started to get older, and he would still say that, you know, thanks for doing this with me. I couldn't have done this without you. And I start going like, really? I feel like I kind of just made it harder on you. Then there's a season there where it kind of just felt like a duty. Like, man, I got to do this thing. Dad has a chore. So we're going to Home Depot three times because it's kind of how it goes. And it's going to be this, this day thing and it's going to be this problem. And I have to do this work and I have this chore and it's a chore and it's a duty and whatever, whatever, whatever. But then I started to realize and it started to click with me that the reason he's including me in his work was not because I necessarily made it easier or better, but because he, the point of the work was to do it with me. That when he said, I couldn't have done this without you, this wasn't just finish the project, but this was have a father and son moment where we're working on something together. And so walking in these works after God sometimes feels like a duty 
or there's this thing you ought to be doing. And we see that in Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane when he's praying, if there's any other way, let it be. I don't want to be crucified. I'm not interested in obeying during this next step. I have no desire to be tortured. And there's a duty involved in that. But what we see in the book of Hebrews, it says that for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. And so really, when we have this vision of works being something that God is including us in, there might be moments of duty, but it is for an ultimate delight. That God the Father, his goal is to do it with us. That he's inviting us to do his work. That his work to make the world anew, his work to be a light to the nations, his work to include us in his people, there's this sense in which he enjoys fellowship with us when we're included in his chores. Did he have to let us be a part of his work in the world? No, but that's not the point. The point is, is he wanted us to be a part of his work in the world. And so when you think about the acts of obedience, the work that you have to do, the, the, the calls to die to yourself that you're engaged in, there might be moments of duty, but in a Christ-centered vision of for the joy set before him endure, you'll recognize that even in the moments of duty, it gives way to this ultimate sense of delight that I get to get in on what God is doing in the world, that my Father is choosing to include me in his job. That my father is choosing to say, come with me as I do this. This is what obedience is. It's not God saying, do your chores or else. It's him saying, I have work to do. Do you want to come with me, son? Amen. When you think about your work, our collective work to represent God to the nations, that we are the people that God has created, do you think about it more in terms of duty or in terms of delight? Because I think that while there's moments of duty in a bigger, grander sense, it's this delightful participation that for the joy set before us, we get to endure and walk in the things that God has prepared for us because of his grace. So in that sense, even the work we're called to do is grace because it's the movement of God towards us to include us, to incorporate us into what he's doing in the world. So on a fundamental level, God is doing a new thing and the only way that you get in on it in terms of faith, in terms of works, is the grace of God. If you try and stand on anything else, it will fail you. Let me pray. Father, thank you for being kind and gracious. I pray that when uh, the grace of God comes to mind, that we would think of inclusion that you have included us because of who you are, not because of who we are. That we get to participate in your work in the world, among us and around us. And I prayed we'd see the delight of a father who gets to have his children involved in what he's doing. That it's a delight for us, but it's a delight for you as well. I pray that we have that vision of a father who smiles with us. Amen.